Well, if you haven't gotten them already, let's get our Bibles or our electronics and open up our Bible apps. Let's go to the book of John chapter 20 this morning. Thank you, church, just on a personal note. Thank you for how you have prayed for me, prayed for our family in the three months that I've been on sabbatical. I gave you an update, and, and I, I could just magnify that update even more and say God just continues to be faithful and merciful and gracious, meeting me in ways that I, I really can't put into words. I feel refreshed. I, I feel like my, my tank is full again. I feel like I'm uh, filled with new delight in Christ. Now, we know life always is going to challenge us, and, and it's, we're all a work in progress, but I just want to thank you for your prayers during that time. And during that time, one of the things that came to my mind was, was you and all of us who go through trials, all of us as Christians know what it feels like at some point in our walk with Christ to feel like we just kind of hit a wall, to, to feel like we're just kind of depleted. And late last year, that's, that's how I began to feel. Now, as I look back on it now, I can tell you with honesty, I am grateful for that. I'm grateful for that, that feeling of emptiness, that feeling of need, because that need drove me to Christ. That need reminded me of my need for him to be filled again and to be encouraged again. That's the, that's the strange thing about the trials we face. Some of them can be used to draw us to Christ, but other times our hearts may be tempted to, to pull away from Christ, and pull away from Christians. The same trial can have one effect to drive us to God or tempt us to move away from God. Maybe you saw the headline just this week, a new Gallup poll came out that surveyed Americans that said only 47% of people now say they belong to some type of religious church or organization. The reason that's significant is that's the first time that that number has dipped below 50% 50 in almost 100 years. Now, we know that polls can be deceiving. A lot is wrapped up into why people leave churches. We know that attending a church or even being a member of a church does not automatically make us a Christian. So it's safe to say that some of those who answered that poll and have now departed from church, some of those were never Christians to begin with. They were simply attending a building with people. And we also know that God is promising and has promised to purify his church. Persecution will come. People will fall away. But that just gives us an added encouragement to do more evangelism, doesn't it? But now a question this morning, what about the others? What about the people who truly trust in Christ, but for whatever reason have been tempted to pull away? have walked away from being part of a church? What about those who have been overwhelmed with doubts and fears, not just the challenges of last year, but the challenges of life? Trials, heartache, pressures, continued conflicting philosophies from a culture that is gradually more and more hostile to the Bible, 
and will be till Jesus comes. What are we to do about that? How are we to find remedy for our own doubts and fears? Not just pointing to people who are not here this morning, but looking at our own hearts and our own struggles and asking the question, what, what can be done? Well, we know it's not going to be done by politicians. That doubt and fear is not going to be fixed by church programs. It can only be remedied by a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Looking again at his wounds, remembering what he has done for us, both in dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then coming and saving us and making us his own. Knowing that Jesus is alive forevermore is the remedy to every doubt and fear you and I will face. In fact, that's the main thing I want you to put in your pocket and take out of here today is that beautiful truth that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is hope for the hardest heart. And that includes every single one of us. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. Now, since we're kind of parachuting into a narrative, let me just kind of remind you what's happened to this point before we read. Jesus has been nailed to a cross. He died. He was buried in a tomb. The stone was put in the front of it. His disciples were hidden away. Women went to the tomb several days after Jesus was crucified to anoint his body with spices, only to find the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty. Jesus appeared to one of the women and said, go and tell my disciples I have risen. She obeys the Lord, but the disciples don't really believe her. And so while the disciples are hidden in a room with the door locked, Jesus appears in their presence. And he says, peace be with you. They're afraid. They're terrified. They think they're seeing a ghost. And so Jesus very kindly, very patiently walks over, picks up some food, and eats it in front of them. Can a ghost do that? I'm here, guys. It's really me. In that moment, their doubt turns into faith, but not all of them. One disciple was missing from that gathering that day, and that was Thomas. That's where we pick up in our story. We're going to read John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and then we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Lord, we bow our hearts before you in joyful adoration, in excitement, and in gratitude of this day that we celebrate your resurrection. But Lord, we're also careful to remember that our hearts are often burdened, often broken, and the truth that we hold too tightly one day can slip from our grasp the next. And so we stop and we ask for your help this morning as we open this word and as we unpack what has happened and as you, Holy Spirit, apply this to our hearts, would you do that today? Would you renew our faith and our trust that you would be glorified above all? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, for those who grew up in church, maybe you went to Sunday school, When I say the name Thomas, what's the first thing you think of? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. Now, I I personally think that's that's an unfair label. We'll get to that in a moment. We really don't know that much about this disciple. We know that he had a nickname, Didymus, which means the twin. How original would you feel if somebody calls you, what's up, twin? So that implies that he has a twin brother or twin sister. We also know that Thomas is listed, when we see him in the New Testament, most often he's listed in the list of disciples in each of the four Gospels. And I think it's just, it's really not fair to judge a guy on one conversation. And so thankfully we have at least two other places in the New Testament, both in the book of John, that gives us a little, little wider window into this man and what he's all about. One of those places is back in John chapter 11, when Jesus tells his disciples, I've got to go back through Judea, which the disciples knew that meant I've got to go face my enemies again on the way to doing more miracles. And the disciples were against it. They didn't want to see Jesus harmed. And filled with fear, they're trying to convince Jesus not to go. But one disciple speaks up with courage. Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. So the man known as Doubting Thomas, well, at least there he's got great faith. He speaks with a voice of conviction and courage, willing to even go and die with Jesus. And then the other place we hear from Thomas is in John chapter 14, where Jesus is again telling his disciples, I must die and then I'm going to rise from the dead, and then I'm going to ascend to heaven, and I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you that you can come be with me. Well, in a moment of of shock and and love, Thomas speaks up. He says, Lord, we we don't know the way. Where are you going? How how can we know the way? And that's where we hear Jesus' famous response, I am the way and the truth and the life. So like the other disciples, Thomas didn't understand a lot of what Jesus was saying, and they didn't understand where Jesus was going or why they couldn't go with him right then and there. But what we see from that response from Thomas is a heart wanting to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Someone who does not want to be without the Savior and to be in his presence. Where are you going, Lord? We need directions. Draw us a map. We don't want to be without you. 
So just from these two accounts, we don't find a sour, bitter, doubting man. We find a courageous man ready to die for Jesus. And we see a loving man committed wanting to follow Jesus wherever he may go. Now, that begs the question, if that's the kind of guy we're talking about, what has happened that he would give such a horrible, bitter ultimatum? Look at it again in verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That doesn't leave any wiggle room. There's, there's no gray area in that. No maybes, no, no taking back. Unless I can see and touch those wounds for myself, I'm done. I will never believe. How, how did he get to that point so quickly? Well, I think it's important to remember all of the disciples, including Thomas, were committed Jews, having been taught from childhood the law of Moses and the prophets and embedded in all of that the promise of the coming Messiah and they had been following the Messiah God's king come to earth to set up his kingdom and like all the other disciples Thomas expected that Messiah to be the one to set up his kingdom on earth to overthrow Rome and they were going to rule and reign with him not to mention Thomas like the other disciples He's left home. He's left family. He's left a job to follow Jesus. He's all in. There, there is no security net. There's, there's no plan B, no contingencies. This is all or nothing. For over three years, Thomas followed Jesus, watching him, listening to him, seeing with his own eyes the miracles Jesus would perform, opening blinded eyes, turning water to wine, walking on the water, calming the storm with a word, raising up crippled people who have never walked in their entire lives, even raising the dead. Thomas had seen all this with his own eyes and expected things to get better and better and better until the coronation of the Messiah was official. But it didn't happen that way. So imagine that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is broken and distraught and the disciples can't understand why. Imagine as they watch the soldiers arrive and arrest Jesus. Imagine now the disciples see Jesus, their king, God in the flesh, be beaten, his beard plucked out spit upon, mocked. Now imagine the unimaginable. They see the very Son of God stripped naked and nailed to a cross and hung in agony for six long hours and finally died. If that's all you knew and that's all you saw, where would your hope be? Where would my hope be? Probably where theirs was, gone. 
Now we have the joy and the luxury of knowing what Jesus was doing, that he willingly laid down his life to pay for our sins, that he would defeat death so that not only he would live, but we would live with him forever. We know that. They didn't. They forgot what Jesus taught them. They didn't understand. All they knew is what they saw, and their hope was gone. Everything they'd hoped in, all the expectation, what they thought was going to happen, didn't. And now they didn't know what to do with it. Now, perhaps we haven't been quite that desperate. But because we live in a broken world, none of us are strangers to disappointment. We all know what it feels like to have our expectations raised, to, to hope in something. If, if that thing would only change, if that would just get remedied, my life would be so much better. If, if I just got that promotion or got that job, if I was just able to buy that house or live in that neighborhood or drive that car, if I could only just get into that college or marry that person, if finally that doctor or that medicine would cure the sickness, if only that thing, that goal could be achieved, if only that problem could be remedied, finally life would be good. Well, maybe you've had a moment where you were hoping in that thing and it never happened. And it feels like your hope is gone. Or what can be worse, you actually get that very thing you've been hoping in and you find it doesn't bring the peace and the joy that you were expecting. When things like that happen in our lives, big or small, it can chip away at our heart. It's like little pieces of our soul dying and it can tempt us not to want to hope in anything or believe in anyone again. Being a Christian does not make us immune to disappointment. Following Jesus does not mean our faith is always going to be strong, that we'll never face doubts, or that we always have it all together because we don't. And I think one of the reasons God puts examples like Thomas in the Bible is to help us and encourage us to see we're not alone. Someone who saw Jesus face to face and followed him still faced his own doubts. But I think there was a bigger reason God put this story in the Bible, was to remind us that when we do face doubts and fears and anger, Jesus doesn't shun us, but he draws near. Jesus draws near to us even when we can't find the faith to muster. Spoiler alert, you're not saved this morning because you mustered up the faith anyway. He gave it to you. He met you in your sin. He met you in the distance. And he knows how to draw you near. We're encouraged by that when we read texts like this. Thomas, that was probably the last thing in the world he would expect. But Jesus did draw near. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on in Thomas's heart in this moment. It's obvious that he's grieving. His friend is dead. I think it's safe to say Thomas was disappointed and angry because the Messiah, the one he thought was going to reign forever, is now gone. 
And because Thomas is human, I have to assume he was a little embarrassed as well. He had left family and friends, and he was going to have to return to them and basically admit, I was wrong. So with those things in mind, hear again the weight of Thomas's ultimatum. Unless I can see and touch and verify with my five senses that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, I will never believe. Put another way, I will never believe again. I'll never trust again. I'll never hope again. I'll never get close again. Now, why was seeing and touching those wounds so important to Thomas? Well, he knew that if he saw those wounds in a dead man, they'd be meaningless. It'd be nothing more than forensic evidence to prove how a guy died. But to see fatal wounds in a living man, well, that would be different. That would prove that man is no mere man. It would prove that man is God. So for Thomas, here's the all or nothing. Either all hope was lost or all hope was found in Jesus. And church, let me tell you today, it's the very same for you and me. Either all hope is lost because Jesus was just another teacher, just another prophet, just another good man teaching others how to be good, or all hope is found because Jesus is God. The Bible says eight days passed. Eight days between the, the appearings of Jesus to his disciples. Eight days that Thomas was stuck in this faithless limbo. Eight days to hang around a crowd of guys who are laughing and rejoicing and you are in bitter despair. You know what it feels like when you're going through a rough time and everybody around you just seems happy? Isn't that irritating? Now, we logically know the world doesn't stop when we're going through a tough time, but it doesn't make it any easier. It's almost like we cry out, don't you know what I'm going through? How could you be happy? I'm guessing Thomas felt that way for those eight days. Disciples laughing, singing, telling stories about the miracles Jesus did, what was possibly to come that they haven't yet seen. And all Thomas could do was shake his head and say, I've not seen him. I haven't seen him yet. But then, then on the eighth day, Jesus appears. Just like before, the disciples are huddled in a locked room. Just like before, Jesus doesn't open the door, just kind of comes through it, appears before them. Just like before, says, peace be with you. Shalom, which is a blessing to say, I want you to be whole and complete. How ironic, because Thomas was not. He was broken. But unlike before, Jesus sees the one who was missing a week ago, 
and as if he's the only one in the room, looks at him. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Don't believe, but disbelieve. Now in our reading, that can kind of happen really fast, but, but stay a while. Picture Jesus walking up to Thomas. Thomas, wide-eyed, tears filling his eyes. Jesus, not scolding, not angry, but gently with love and mercy and grace. He holds out his hands. Here they are, Thomas. Come touch. They, they don't hurt anymore. Thomas, let me see your other hand. Remember when that Roman soldier stuck his spear into my heart? Still here. My heart was pierced for you, Thomas, so that yours would believe. Thomas, don't live in doubt. Don't disbelieve. I'm right here. It's me. I can only imagine as I would think and see. And so I imagine Thomas in a weeping mess before the Lord. Every tear coming down his face, melting away the doubt, melting away the shame, melting away the anger and the fear as a trembling hand touches the steady nail-pierced hand. And in one of the most beautiful proclamations uttered from the lips of man concerning Jesus, Thomas says five beautiful words. My Lord and my God. Lord, kurios in the Greek means the one whom I follow, the one whom my life belongs to. But Thomas didn't stop there my Lord and my God. They called Jesus Lord when they followed him. They called him master and teacher and rabbi. But here stood that same Jesus, not the same. Here stood the Jesus who's defeated death, who rose from the grave, who took the worst that the best army on earth had to give and stood there smiling. This was not simply Lord, this was God. His anger, Thomas's anger becomes worship. His doubt becomes faith. And notice, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. This relationship is personal because those wounds are personal. Jesus died for all of his disciples. But in that moment, when Jesus is standing in front of Thomas, Thomas realizes Jesus died for him. You and I realize today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, Christians all over the world are celebrating. Jesus died for his church, and we rejoice. But in our celebration, don't miss the fact that Jesus died for you, for your sin, your doubts, your unbelief, 
your fears, your condemnation, your struggles, your pain. Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for your transgressions against the Father and mine. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose to ensure his whole church will get to be with him for eternity. But don't miss, he rose so that you could be with him. That where he is, you may be also. This morning, there's no doubt Jesus is Lord. But is he your Lord? No doubt Jesus is God, but is he your God? In what Jesus showed Thomas, Thomas's guilt and shame and fear melted. This morning, as we're gazing, as it were, to, into Jesus's wounds, maybe you turn away in fear saying, I've gone too far. I've said too many wrong things. I've done too many wrong things. I'm too dirty. I've run too far away. And yet Jesus, no matter how far you run, you turn around and Jesus is right there. No matter how far you go, he's right there. You know, I think we often get a misconception of our trials, that we can almost look at faith like it's this linear thing that the farther I move away from God, the farther I feel like I've gone from God, the longer it's going to take for him to reach me. The longer time, the more effort it's going to take for him to slowly drag me back. So why even try? Can I just submit this to you this morning? Faith is not a linear thing. That sometimes in your deepest, darkest disappointments and fears and doubts, that's when Jesus is closest. Our doubts don't scare him away. He came to be Savior, and that's what we need every single day. He came, the shepherd, to go get the lost sheep. We need that shepherd every day, and guess what? He's there every day. So you haven't gone too far. He's closer than you think. Now what about Thomas? Thomas, racked with doubt, racked with fear, turns, sees Jesus, sees the wounds, his doubt melts. I think it's safe to say Thomas was never the same. I think it's safe to say Thomas never again asked to see those wounds. We don't know exactly what happened to Thomas. The last mention of him in the Bible is in the book of Acts. Again, he makes a list. But this list is one of those who went and obeyed Jesus when he said, wait in Jerusalem, I'm going to send you the power of the Holy Spirit so that you will be my witnesses all over the world. And Thomas is listed as one who obeyed. That means Thomas was filled with the Spirit. Now the Bible doesn't tell us, but we have some pretty credible sources from Christian historians that say Thomas went on to be a great evangelist. Not surprising, is it? And that Thomas was actually the first person to carry the gospel to India where it had never been preached. And because he was so effective at preaching the gospel and so many Hindus were being saved, that Thomas was killed for Christ. 
Now this morning, it's not about Thomas. This story is in the Bible not to point us to Thomas, but to point us to the one who appeared with the nail prints in his hands and his feet and the scar and the wound in his side so that we too would see and believe. Have you ever thought about Jesus rising from the dead in a perfect body? Because, you know, he promises we're going to rise from the dead and be given new bodies that can't die and can't be hurt. Have you ever thought he could have risen from the grave without any scar, any wound at all? But he didn't. Those wounds were intact. Why? So that we would never forget so that we would be able to see those wounds for all eternity and sing of those wounds and what they represent for all eternity, the Lamb who was slain and lives. Now it's true, Jesus Jesus tells Thomas, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Jesus is speaking about all the Christians who would come later who would not be able to see Jesus in the flesh as Thomas was able, but would believe without seeing him in the flesh. But also I believe the same invitation is given to us, church, because that includes us today. That Jesus is giving the same invitation, come and see, through eyes of faith, through a heart that has been filled with faith that God has given. Come and see again the wounds of the one who died for you. But remember, you're not looking at the wounds of a dead man. Those are fatal wounds in one who is alive. Those wounds aren't bleeding anymore because the work is finished. He has defeated sin. He has defeated the devil. He has defeated death itself. Jesus has won the victory. Enemies of God have been called friends of God. Those who have been far away have been brought home. The orphan and the outcast has been adopted into the family of the Father because the Son has made it so. Come and see those wounds to remind us the drastic length that Jesus went to save us. Come and see the wounds again to be reminded of the depth of love he has for his church, but the love that he has for you this morning right here. And come and see those wounds again to be reminded that Jesus, who rose from the dead, is the one who gives us new life in him right here and right now, and then a fulfilled new life when he returns. That's what those wounds remind us. Matthew Henry, famous scholar and 17th century pastor, puts it beautifully. He says, come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are your healings. His agonies are your repose. His conflicts are your conquests. His groans are your songs. His pains are your ease. His shame is your glory. His death is your life. And his suffering is your salvation. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is hope for the hardest heart. 
you are no exception. There is hope for the skeptic, the one who has been hurt too many times, who has been wounded by the world too many times, maybe even by churches. Jesus is standing and saying, come, look upon the one who was wounded for you. The world has hurt you. Come, look upon the wounds to be reminded I have overcome the world for you. And as we come and we see again, our faith begins to rise. As we see the nail prints in his hands, don't miss that those hands are open, ready to receive you. As we come to look at those nail-pierced feet, don't miss those are the same feet that came after you when you were far away and thought you couldn't be rescued. He did. And as we are invited to put our hand in the wound in his side, let us remember his heart was pierced so that ours could be cleansed and made whole. And this Easter, may we stand and gaze upon our risen Savior and with unrestrained worship echo those words, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious and patient that you would extend such an invitation to us today. Lord, for those who have not surrendered their lives to you, those who have been in the bleachers watching from a distance, figuring out this Christianity thing, Lord, may today change everything. May they be brought near to see the wounds for themselves and know it was for them. Save those who are far off today, Lord. And for those who claim you as Lord and King, Lord, may we be reminded afresh today and filled with new awe and wonder and delight as we gaze upon our risen Savior through eyes of faith that one day we will see face to face. Blessed be the name of the Lord, our God. In Jesus' name, amen.